the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray together. Blessed Father, oh, how we love you and thank you that because of Christ we may come to approach thy throne of grace. We open up thy word, breathe out Holy Scripture, rejoicing in the dance of truth and guidance. Father, speak to our minds, illumine our thoughts that we might see more clearly the connections of your thoughts in Scripture. And then soften our wills, for Lord, we are a stubborn people. We have resisted. I still resist you. Lord, have mercy. Soften our wills that we will not dig in our heels and fight against the move of your Spirit. And Father, then awaken our joy. Let our joy rest in peace and our peace dance in joy as we engage thy holy word. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Before we read from Colossians 1, I was a little puzzled by a particular when Don uh, read from Psalms 121. He cited, did he not, that I had requested that he read from the King James Version. I had. He then extolled the King James Version as the authorized, inspired, and errant. So I don't know if he was saying something, but <laughs> no. Thank you. I've used that scripture so many times, coming alongside people in great, great distress. Stand together with me. Colossians chapter 1. We'll read from verses 19. And I think we'll not read all the way to 29. Maybe. We'll see. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, the Father, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. You may be seated. Glorious is this blessed book breathed out by the Holy Spirit using the Apostle Paul to write it. Paul is, you will recall, imprisoned in Rome. And yet, oh, the joy when he learns from Epaphras of the newly birthed church five days walk away in Colossae. Epaphras had heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the gospel of grace and mercy, while Paul preached it in the seacoast city of Ephesus. At returning home, Epaphras, with his heart swelling with joy in Jesus, began doing what he had watched Paul do, <laughs> preach Jesus Christ. And God the Father had rebirthed many, regenerating them, yanking them, transferring them, delivering them from the domain and tyranny of darkness, placing them into the good shepherd's arms, the kingdom of the Son of his love. And in Christ's blessed arms, the believers had had, from verse 14, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12, grace and peace from God the Father. Verse 2, rather. Verse 5, a hope laid up for them in heaven. Verse 6, an epicenter-type encounter by God as they began to grasp the wonder of the grace of God. Verse 8, a singularly beautiful, simple devotion to God in love in the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, they were being filled with a rich knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 11, they were being strengthened by the Holy Spirit according to the might of his glory. In verse 11, they were growing in their steadfastness, stick to with difficult circumstances and joyful 
patience with difficult people. <laughs> There's where the rubber meets the road. Stick to it in us with difficult circumstances, joyful patience with difficult people. That's the point. That's one of the points of the gospel. Verse 12, they were lifting up thankful hearts to the Father who had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in God's celestial city of light. Mm. Well, the young church, though, was being assaulted, you will recall, by two false teachings. A mystical polytheism, early form of the heresy of Gnosticism, the belief that a vast host of intermediate spirits between the Creator God and sinful mankind. And these spirit guides, spirit voices, had to be acknowledged and appeased, said the false teachers. Christ was not enough. Second issue, legalism in the form of Jewish feast days, new moons, even Sabbaths, all with the Torah-guided words, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But the Spirit of God then guided Paul to hold up Christ Jesus as supreme ruler over creation and over the new creation, the body, the church. So verses 15 to 17, we have seen Christ is Lord supreme over the cosmos, over the universe, over the nebula, over stars, red dwarfs, planets, asteroids, comets. He's Lord of the universe. Verses 18 through 20. Christ is Lord supreme over the body, the church. And as he is the firstborn preeminent one over all creation, he is also the firstborn second Adam from the dead. God's rule and reign through Adam has been reestablished in the man, Christ Jesus, God's second Adam. That huge theology. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5, is central to God's purposes. That God's rule and reign through Adam has been finally and eternally established in the man, Christ Jesus, God's second Adam. Verses 19 and chapter 2, verse 9 woven together for it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of deity would dwell in Christ all 
the fullness of deity. Verse 19, and then go to chapter 2, verse 9, repeats it, intensifies it, would dwell in Christ. Now, as is my pattern of explanation first, then what doctrine do we see? Then what application? This scripture forces explanation and doctrine to be molded together as we turn back to verse 20. Verse 20, listen to it again, and then let me read Calvin to you. And through Christ, him, to reconcile all things to himself, the Father, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Listen to Calvin now. I prefer to understand this, verse 20, as referring to angels and men. And as to the latter, there is no difficulty as to their having need of a peacemaker in the sight of God. Mankind needs that. As to angels, though, there is a question not easy of solution. For what occasion is there for reconciliation where there is no discord or hatred, Calvin asked. Many influenced by this consideration have explained the passage before us in this manner. The angels have been brought into agreement with men and that by this means heavenly creatures have been restored to favor with earthly creatures. But another meaning is conveyed by Paul's words that God hath reconciled to himself. That explanation, therefore, is forced. That's Calvin. He continues, It is clear that the nature of the peacemaking between God and man was this, that enmities have been abolished through Christ, and thus God becomes a father instead of a judge. Praise God. Calvin didn't say praise God. Between God and angels, the state of matters is very different, for there is no revolt, no sin, and consequently no separation. It was, however, necessary that angels should be made to be at peace with God, for being creatures... They were not beyond the risk of falling had they not been confirmed by the grace of Christ. Hmm. This is of no small importance for the perpetuity, the ongoing nature of peace with God to have a fixed standing in righteousness so as to have no longer 
any fear of fall or revolt. Perhaps you've never thought about it. But what if God were to translate you straight from where you are, straight as you are, into heaven? How long would you last? How long before you have a thought that was just self-centered at best? <laughs> We'd be toast instantly. Something has to be done. And that's Calvin's thought here. We'll bring some application shortly. Calvin. In that very obedience which they render to God, there is not such absolute perfection as to give satisfaction to God in every respect and without the need of pardon. And this, beyond all doubt, is what is meant by that statement in Job 4.18. Job 4.18 states, He will find error in his angels. Hmm. Job 4.18. Now the King James says he will find iniquity, which would be sin. But I've checked it. It's not the word iniquity. It is the word error. But it is significant. He's not talking about the demons. He's not talking about Satan. Job 4.18 declares that there is such a vast contrast between uncreated deities, righteousness and holiness, and creaturely righteousness and holiness. Then Job 4.18, he will find error in his angels. Now, Calvin, for if it is explained as referring to the devil, what mighty thing were it? <laughs> of course, he found error in Satan, Lucifer, and cast him out. I think you can tell when I'm not quoting Calvin, can't you? Okay, back to Calvin. But the Spirit declares there that the greatest purity is vile if it is brought into comparison with the righteousness of God. Listen to that again. He doesn't quote, cite the verse. But Calvin writes, But the Spirit declares that the greatest purity is vile if it is brought into comparison with the righteousness of God. Calvin is citing Isaiah 64.6a. Isaiah 64.6a. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's New American. ESV 
calls it like a polluted garment. Calvin says we must therefore conclude that there is not on the part of angels so much of righteousness as would suffice for their being fully joined with God. They have therefore need of a peacemaker through whose grace they may wholly cleave to God. Hence, it is with propriety that Paul declares that the grace of Christ does not reside among mankind alone and on the other hand makes it common also to angels. Nor is there any injustice done to angels sending them to a mediator that they may through his kindness have a well-grounded peace with God. He then anticipates the arguments. I quote, again. Should anyone on the pretext of the universality of the expression move a question in reference to devils, whether Christ be their peacemaker also? I answer no, not even of wicked men, though I confess there is a difference as much as the benefit of redemption is offered to men, but not to angels. This, however, has nothing to do with Paul's words here, which include nothing else than this. And I've emboldened and highlighted Calvin here. It is through Christ alone that all creatures who have any connection at all with God cleave to him. Hmm. That's deep waters. Deep waters. Driven, forced, as Calvin says, by the wording that he has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. Where? By the blood of his cross. Hmm. Some doctrinal particulars. The best of our righteousness is in God's eyes like a filthy rag, brothers and sisters. The opposing categories in Isaiah 64, 6 are very much in contrast. The very best of the best of our righteousness is in God's eyes like a cloth used during a woman's period. That's the literal Hebrew. Hmm. Second particular. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Third particular, 
Our sanctification is not what saves us. How sanctified you are has nothing to do with your salvation. God, it's our justification that saves us. When God legally declares us just, righteous, straight in Christ, then the Holy Spirit works progressively on sanctification, bringing us into conformity with the righteousness of Christ positionally wrapped around us. Fourth, legalism. Sinclair Ferguson says that legalism rears its ugly head when believers begin taking pride in their sanctification. Oh, Ouch. Legalism, the spirit behind it, or maybe not the cogitated thoughts, but the spirit behind it rears its ugly head, legalism, when believers, saved by grace through faith, and that not yourself, when believers begin taking pride in their sanctification. Fifth particular, this raises the question, Calvin's thoughts from verse 20, raises the question of how are we made sinless in heaven? Oh, I know positionally I'm righteous in Christ. I also know that personally I have great need of sanctification. I know that when I'm glorified, all that sin and sinfulness will be done away. But mankind has shown a frightful capacity to fall away from God, have we not? So have the angels. And that's the issue. I interacted with Ligonier Chat, Ligonier.org or net. You can chat with them, ask biblical theological questions. I did. There's a very interesting interaction between R.C. Sproul and Ian Hamilton that I'll be happy to provide you with if desired, but we'll not go there any further today. So the 20th verse clearly says that God has reconciled all things on earth and in heaven to himself where having made peace through the blood of his cross and Calvin's understanding is the richest and deepest that I've encountered now verses 21 through 23 explanation Paul now applies this grand doctrine to the believers in Colossae. And he is saying, you are guilty of very great ingratitude if you are allowing yourself to be drawn away from Christ to new teachings. 
observe the trajectory of his thought. First, he establishes that Christ is the supreme Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of all things visible and invisible. He is the supreme preeminent one. Second, consider more fully the profound benefits of Christ's redemption from macro picture who is Christ to micro picture head of the body the church firstborn of the dead that he might have first place in everything hmm. well verse 21 you were formerly alienated from God hostile in the whole of your mental state, Paul says, and thus engaged in evil deeds. Now observe that our evil behavior is the result of the hostility of our minds. The misuse of the imagination precedes the physical outward sin. Listen to foul profanity enough eventually having it in your head will cause it to come out of your mouth. So be careful what you take in through the eye gate, through the ear gate. Be careful what you take in because you sow a thought, you reap an action. It's guaranteed. If you plant these seeds into your mind and heart, you're going to have a harvest and it won't be pretty. Yet now, God the Father has reconciled us through Christ's fleshly body, through death. That's verse 22. It was necessary that the Son of God should become man, and be partaker of our flesh that he might be our brother. And it was necessary that he should by dying become a sacrifice that the Father might be able to be propitiated towards us. The word propitiation is, the, is set over against expiation. Expiation deals with the righting of the wrong. Propitiation deals with the settling of the offense with the one offended. And that's why propitiation is translated pity, mercy. Because to be propitiated is to be made to feel merciful towards, to feel pity towards. It's a publican prayer. He doesn't pray, God have mercy, that's King James. It's because they're translating the Greek propitiation. The publican literally says, be propitiated towards me. Be made to feel pity towards me. Have mercy on me. So Romans 3, 25 gloriously speaks here of God's actions on Christ, quote, set forth 
for himself did God as a propitiation in his blood. You say, what's the point? The Son did not win the Father over. It was not through the action of God the Son that he won the Father over to our side. No. Father and Son worked in pure divine harmony making possible the pronouncement by God of guilty men and women as innocent because he had declared the innocent righteous man, his beloved son, guilty. 2 Corinthians 5, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in the Son. This is the glory of the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. But observe the second half of verse 22 into 23. The incarnation of the Son of God was real and necessary for the demonstration of God's righteousness, bestowing peace on sinners. How could God declare guilty people innocent? It's a travesty of justice. It's forbidden, explicit in the Old Testament. God says, Cursed is the judge who pronounces the innocent guilty and the guilty innocent. But that's what he does in the gospel. How? By declaring the only innocent, perfectly innocent man, his son, guilty and damning him on the cross. The table of justice is turned upside down. And God can now look at the likes of you and me and say, just, righteous, because I clothe you in Christ's righteousness, because I put your sins on Christ at the cross. Mm. But those who have received his peace have direct access to him already and will have it in fullness when they are presented before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So forgiveness, reconciliation, transference is a one-time act of justification. But there is a goal 
and that is the final presentation of 22. Look at 22b before God to present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. But how does verse 23 start? If, if, you say that's not Presbyterian, it's biblical. If, look at 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. If you continue in faith. This is Calvin again. This is a passage worthy of observation showing that a graced righteousness is not conferred upon us in Christ without at the same time being regenerated by the Spirit to the obedience of righteousness. For he teaches us elsewhere that Christ is made to us righteousness and sanctification, the former obtained by gratuitous acceptance, acceptance of a gift, grace, and that by the gift of the Holy Spirit when we are made new creatures. There is an inseparable connection between these two blessings of grace. And Calvin then says, This holiness is nothing more than begun in us and is indeed every day making progress but will not be perfected until Christ shall appear for the restoration of all things. End quote. Positionally, we are made righteous in Christ by a legal declaration of God, but experientially we're still rotten sinners with foul mouths and bad attitudes towards our wife, towards our husband, towards our children, towards our parents, but positionally we are righteous in Christ. Justification deals with the one-time act by God. It is the indicative of the gospel. Sanctification deals with the ongoing, progressive, day-by-day, changing, molding, reshaping of this saved sinner into Christ's likeness. That's sanctification. F.F. Bruce says, The pronouncement of justification made in the believer's favor here and now, anticipates the pronouncement of the judgment day. The holiness of life, which is progressively wrought, worked, brought about by the Spirit here and now, is to issue in perfection of glory at Christ's appearing. Doctrine. 
very short, to the point, not uh, exhaustively played out. But there are twin dangers to the glorious gospel of grace. Two specific dangers that the New Testament identifies. The first is legalism, salvation by keeping law. I've got to do this and this in order to be saved. I've got to be good in order to be saved is legalism. The second is antinomianism. You say, what's that? The word for law is nomos. Anti-law is the concept. Antinomianism. And this is a salvation by a rejection of God's law. There's no need for repentance, no need of growth in graces by putting to death sin, because you are of the elect and good to go as you are. That's antinomianism. But Romans 3, 31, Paul raises this question after he has just lambasted the law as doing nothing but condemning the sinner. And then says in Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Far from it. On the contrary, we establish the law. I did not understand that until I understood Reformed theology. And I came to see that as the Reformers accurately from the New Testament saw, we are saved by grace through faith, and that's a gift from God. We are not saved by law-keeping. Law does not save us. Law just condemns us. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is still in perpetuity the rule of life for the believer. Not so that you'll be saved, but because you are saved. This is the image of Christ laid out in precept. If you want to really examine the contours of this, go to Sermon Audio, The Moral Controversy, and listen to Sinclair speak to three conference messages. Historical overview, legalism, antinomianism. His teaching there is why I am where I am today. So both legalism and antinomianism are seriously a distortion of gospel truth. And both receive the apostolic anathema in Galatians and Romans. God forbid to legalism. God forbid to the thought that it doesn't matter how you live because you're of the elect. It is, again, the grammar of the gospel. 
Legalism camps on the imperatives. They don't understand what God has done. They think they've got to do it. Antinomianism camps on the indicative, ignoring the fact that behind every indicative in the scripture there is always an imperative. If God has done this, this is how you live. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them whom God justified, he also sanctifies. Application. Paul will continue a trajectory of thought that we will not engage today. But let's observe the goal, the end purpose of the gospel of Christ. And it is stated in 26 and 7 that this mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations has now been manifested to his holy ones, his saints, in whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Pray with me. The application will be the prayer after which we will sing. Glorious is thy promise to us, O Lord, that, that we shall see thy glory. You speak this in Isaiah 35. For in truth thou hast gazed upon us, and we have beheld thy sweet face, blessed Jesus. Soft, tender joy radiates from thy smile. Indeed, the wilderness and desert shall blossom with rejoicing and a shout of joy. For we shall see thy glory, O Yahweh, and thy majesty, O our God, when you bring us home. Blessedly, sweet Jesus, your words tenderly comfort us, encouraging the exhausted, strengthening the feeble. Tenderly speak peace, peace to the anxious heart, blessed Savior, for thou wilt save us. And oh, our joy, as the eyes of the blind are opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap for joy, and the tongue of the mute shout joyfully to the Almighty Savior. We bless thy triune name, 
that thou hast established a highway of holiness where the redeemed may walk without fear, without danger. For who shall condemn us, seeing it is thou who hast justified us? Glory, glory in Emmanuel's blissful land to which we, the redeemed of Yahweh, shall come with joyful shouting into the celestial city of thy glory. And oh, how do we comprehend everlasting joy upon our heads, all sorrow, all sign, all fleas from they who find gladness and joy in thy blessed presence. Hold us, dear Master. Save us, blessed Savior. Tenderly comfort the anxious heart. Bodily pain is distressing, dear Jesus. But thou knowest that. You have walked this path before us, triumphantly victorious on the other side of Jordan's dark waters. Watch over us through this veil of tears in this woeful, sin-sick, corrupted world. Hold our hand, hold our chin above the waters as we gaze fixedly into thy blessed face. And oh, the joy feeling Emmanuel's land under our feet as you draw us ashore embracing us. Oh, we love you. Cannot wait to fall at your feet, worshiping my Lord and my God with great joy, world without end. Amen. <laughs>